Thank you so, so much, Rav Naftali. Thank you, Rav Effie. Thank you to everybody who's here. I apologize. I feel more comfortable speaking in English. And I hope that everybody is able to hear me, is able to understand me, um, and that we can understand each other is super important. And I think that we already do. Just sitting here together. Recording in progress. Just being able to sit with Jews that are involved and devoted and committed to helping other Yidin grow, to helping other Yidin along their journey to stay connected, to increase their connection is something that's incredible. And on top of that, Jews that are in such a position and then are participating in something, in a program, to grow even within that and to learn more and to become better and to hone that skill and that ability to help others in service of Am Yisrael and in service of the Master of the World, of the Ribbono Shalalam, it's an incredible thing. And so it's a privilege for me to be here sitting with you, learning with you, and I know, it's not even a hope, I know for sure that however much you are going to be able to gain from what I have to give, I'm sure that I'm going to be able to learn plenty more, Be'ezer Hashem, from the discussion at the end, and so it's just a tremendous privilege for me, and I want to thank each and every one of you for being here, and to Reb Effie and Reb Shif uh, for making this possible at all. So thank you all for for coming and for being a part of this program. So basically, just to set out from the outset what we're going to try to accomplish in the short time that we have together, I first want to speak a little bit about the concept of stories, the theory of stories especially their place within Yiddishkeit and in educational um, theory. And that's going to be Chelek Aleph. And then after that, with Hashem's help, we're going to try to lay out four tools, practical, something that we can put into practice right away. I'm sure something that all of us have already been putting into practice, but it's good to review. It's always good to review. That's, not, that's three tools relating to storytelling and one tool relating to dynamic speaking, which, uh, of course, is a big challenge to have to dynamically speak about dynamically speaking. So I hope that I can pull that off. But with Hashem's help, I want to begin with a story. And the story is told that in the time of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, Rabbi Yisrael Baal Shem Tov, the founder of the Hasidic movement, whenever there was a gzeiro, whenever there was a difficulty, whenever there was a challenge for Am Yisrael, the Baal Shem Tov would go to a certain place in the forest and over there he would light a candle with mystical intentions and he would say a tefillah, he would say a prayer. And through this, the gezerah, the decree, would be sweetened, tamtakata dinim, everything would be sweetened and Am Yisrael would be able to go ahead and avoid that catastrophe. In the time of the, uh, in the, time of the Magad of Mizrich, the Baal Shem Tov's primary disciple and student, the Magid would go to that place in the forest and the Magid would say, I don't know how to light the candle anymore, but I still remember the prayer. And the Magid would go ahead and say this tefillah and that would be enough and that would go ahead and alleviate the decree. In the time of Ramayi Shalayb Sasa for the next generation, he would go to that place in the forest and he would say, the Master of heaven and earth, I no longer know how to light the candle and I don't either know the prayer. But just being in that place, that would be sufficient. And at the time of the Heligarishner, Rabbi Yisrael of Rish in the fourth generation of Hasidic dynasties, 
he would sit hunched over in his chair in his office and he would look up after hearing countless Jews come in bear their tales of woe and all the difficulties and all the challenges that they were experiencing and he would look up at the ceiling at the broken tattered ceiling with I'm sure you know splotches that needed to be painted over and the, and the originator would say this before he got his mansion because we know that the originator also lived in, 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 in special spiritual opulence but the originator would say Rebana Shalalam I no longer know how to light the candle and I no longer know how to say the tefillah and I've long forgotten the place in the forest where the Baal Shem Tev and the Magid and Ramosha Leib Sasever used to go. And then the Rishoner would call in a few Hasidim and he would say, but one thing we have left and that's the story. That's the story about the Baal Shem. It's the story about Ramosha Leib Sasever. It's the story about the Magid of rich, and that has to be sufficient. And indeed, telling over this story was enough. And the message over here is, of course, that there are certain moments in life, there are certain circumstances where we're tasked with giving over information where nothing else is working. And where we no longer know the proverbial place in the forest, we no longer know how to light the candle or to say the prayer, but a story is sufficient, a story gets through. Back to the originer. one time it's told that there were two Hasidim that came to visit the Rishonah from very far away. They traveled a long distance. And it just happened to be they couldn't have known that they were coming on the same exact day. For very similar reasons, both came bearing books. Both came bearing Sfarim that they had written. One was a Sefer in Halachic Pilpul. Analysis and learning. And the other was a book of Mishalim. The Dibnamagid style kind of tales. Rabbi Nachman style stories parables and when the Gabi of the Rishoner came in and told him who we have waiting outside in the waiting room the Rishoner said send in the storyteller first and he came in with his book of stories and the Rishoner is looking through them and he says this is so beautiful it's so Muragesh I feel it and it's waking me up and inspiring me it's incredible and he gave his askama and then after that they brought in the person that had written the Sefer on halachic analysis and he looks through it and mamish with the same effusive feeling. This must have been given on Harsinai. It was the, the, the deepest, most beautiful, unbelievably deep analysis of whatever area of halacha he was writing on. And when both of them had left, the Gabe came to the Rishoner and he said, I don't understand. It seems to be out of order. What's more of What's more important to you? How could it be that you're bringing in the storyteller before you're bringing in the Paisik? So the originer said, the Gemara tells us in a number of places in Shas, Mahu Afata. We are tasked with imitating HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He said, I did what Hashem already did because Hashem started His Torah with stories first. And the whole Sefer Barashas and into Sefer Shemais, it all begins with tales. And then after that, the Torah is given on our Sinai and we can get into the legalistic analysis, the behavioral information, how to take in a life view, but it needs to be founded on the foundation of, of stories. Hashem puts stories first and stories need to come first in our repertoire of being able to give over Yiddishkeit, Torah, guidance, Hora'ah to those that are blessed and privileged with this group to be in our charge.
So the truth is that there are two modes of education. The first mode of education is lectures, something similar to what we're doing now, even though we've told a number of stories, but it's more technical. Right? A person goes to a training course and they receive information. Here are things to do. Here are things not to do. Here is some of the theory behind it. We can give over and present info, information, and have it typed up. And it's a thesis and it's beautiful and it's content. And we can bring it into our hearts. But there's another mode of education. And I really do want to refer to it as a completely different mode of education. It's something else. It's not just that the content is different. It's a different kind of educational experience. And that is the educational experience that's founded upon, upon storytelling. You know, one of the first stories that were told in the Torah, which begins with stories, is the story of Adam and Chava in the Eitz, in, in, the, in the Gan, Gan Eden. And all of us know with all of the millions of levels of meaning and messages, it's just so incredible how much is packed into this story. But we know that there are two trees in the Gan. There's the Eitz Hadas Toivera, there's the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and then there's the Eitz Hachayim, there's the tree of life. And the Tzadikim say that anything relating to the Eitz Hadas Toivera is educational, informational. It's the tree of knowledge to know what's good and to know what's evil, to be able to process technical information, to learn something out of a safer. That's the Eitz Hadas Toivera. But do you know what the Eitz Hachayim is? The Eitz Hachayim, like which the Torah is compared to, Eitz Chaim Hila Machazikin Ba. Well, the Eitz Chaim is stories. It's a totally different mode of giving over ideas. It has nothing to do with intellectual information. It has to do with a feeling. It has to do with an experience. The Eitzachayim is stories. And David HaMelech says, he looks up at the Rebbeinu Shalelem and he says, Loi amus ki Allow me to live, Master of Heaven and Earth, Loi amus. I won't die, ki but I'm going to live, asaper maseka. And I will live to tell the stories of God, not just with his mouth to go ahead and to tell stories to others, although I'm sure David HaMelech was a master storyteller, but that our very life is a story. And that each breath that we take is a Kodesh Baruch Hu telling a story through us. Hashem knows the ending. We're living it out in real time. That's our story. Each moment as it leads into the next moment, as it leads into the next hour and the next day and the next week and the next month and so on and so forth, this is called storytelling, even if we never open our mouths. This is part of a story that HaKadosh Baruch Hu is telling through each and every one of us. That is our task as human beings, to allow Hashem's story to unfold. We have to play our role. And we don't know what the ending is going to look like. But Hashem is a storyteller first, before He's giving over a doctoral thesis. And that's how the Torah starts, and that's the foundation of all of what this thing called living is. It's storytelling. And therefore, there's going to be something so vibrant and so full of life when it relates to stories. Ki echia va'asaper maseka. In no matter what capacity we're in, and I appreciate that we have Jews coming together from all over the world doing such incredible work. Everybody knows this, and it's basics. We don't even have to review this. There's one thing that Jews are looking for today. 
And that is a Yiddishkeit of life. It's a Yiddishkeit of soul. It's a Yiddishkeit of feeling. Jews want to feel connected. They want to feel connected. They want to feel alive. And Jews come to us schlepping, whether it's into a shul or it's into a shear. Life is challenging. We're living in a very, very confusing time. By any measure, by any standard, things are moving very quickly. People are getting left behind. People are trying to make it through. And I say people, ki'ilu, like we're removed from this. I mean, I can speak for myself. It's very challenging to be a person. <laughs> Maybe ever, but certainly in 2022, it's not easy. I told Hashem yesterday in Espodidus when I was speaking to Hashem in the forest, and I'm lucky, privileged enough to live near a forest over here. And I looked up and I said, Master of Heaven and Earth, if there was a Zoom course on like how to live, I missed it. <laughs> I told, can we, it was it recorded? Like, can we, because I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And it's very, very challenging. It's very difficult. And all of us go through the, the, the experience of challenge and pain. But when we're in the role of mashpia, when we're in the role of a rabbi or a rav or wherever we are positioned, wherever HaKadosh Baruch Hu put us to allow for the unfolding of his story that he's telling through us, we need to appreciate that when a Jew comes through our door, he's not looking purely for information. He's looking to feel as if maybe here I can find some guidance. Maybe here I can find some comfort. Maybe here I can find some connection. Maybe here I can find a little bit of a Tevas Noah to escape from the mabble of the world and the mabble of the Darha mabble that we're living in. A little bit of purity. A little bit of feeling close to Hashem. A little bit of feeling that I can do this thing called life. And so more than they're looking for information, they're looking for stories. They're looking for the educational experience that goes along with stories which are bound with the concept of life. They're looking for dveikos. They're looking for life. Where do we find life and education? How? To give over that feeling of stories. To give over that feeling that it's not just information we want to download into their brains, but we want to give them a place. We want to bring them into our story. We want to let them know that they play an important role in our own story and that we intend to become an important role in their story. That it's a merging of life with life, not just brain with brain, so that the body is nothing more than just like a push cart wheeling around a big brain. No, we're people. We're human beings. And human beings are looking for connection. Your children tell stories because they haven't graduated yet to the realm of theories. Children are telling stories all the time. If you listen carefully, almost everything they say is a story. It's recounting an experience or it's, it's telling over what happened in school today. The first thing they come home is not rattling off the mathematics lesson that they learned. They're telling stories all the time because there's something very youthful about being connected to the kind of cognition that's related to narrative that's related to a lived experience where things aren't so clear-cut, which is an important point we'll get to in a minute. A lot of times in a paper that we spend time writing up, right, or even a book, the person writing the book or the person composing the paper has the privilege of idealizing. 
has the privilege of sort of presenting things as a lechatchila, the way things are supposed to be. Stories provide the capacity to communicate nuance. Or sometimes there's no clear villain, there's no clear hero. Sometimes it just is. Sometimes it's not about what's right or what's wrong, what's bad or what's good. Sometimes it's just, let's just tell each other our story. And in so doing, we have the capacity to give over a Torah of life that holds space for nuance, that holds space for confusion, that holds space for complexity, that doesn't have to put things in boxes all the time, but it's just sharing, which is incredibly, incredibly, incredibly valuable. Now, by the Breslover Hasidim, there's a tradition called Sichas Chaverim, or Sichat Chaverim, which is basically an informal gathering where Jews sit together like they would at a Kiddush or like they would at, you know, a Simcha, just getting together to get together. But everybody who attends, attends with the consciousness that the reason that we're getting together as this group of spiritual fellows and a fellowship is to speak about real things, to be open, ready to share. It's something similar to Lahavdil, but it's something similar to you know an, an AA group or something like that, like a, like group therapy, where Jews get together to be honest and open. I'll never forget one time I, I went to listen to a shir from a Breslov Ramashpio, his name is Remnissen David Kivak, he lives over here in Yerushalayim. And I went in, it was the first time that I was ever going to hear a shir from him. And I knew that he had problems with his voice and that he was dealing with some difficulties. He hadn't been giving shiurim so, uh, so steadily. And so I knew that there was a chance that he wasn't going to show up, but I went and I was hoping and hoping and hoping that he would feel well enough to come and give the shir. So we're sitting there, the shir is called for three o'clock, let's say, and three o'clock comes, 3.05, 3.10, 3.15, he's not showing up. And the Gabai walks in, or whoever it was that was in charge, and he bangs on the table. He says, we're very sorry to tell you, but Nissen is, is not coming tonight. And so what do you expect to happen? Like, there's no shear. What are people going to do? They're going to get up and leave, right? That's what I was expecting. I was halfway out the door. All of a sudden, an elderly chassid sitting all the way in the back bangs on the table, and he announces in a very loud voice, Sichas chaverim. We're going to get together and talk. I turned around, I walked back to the table, and it's clear to me, it's mamash clear to me, that I learned so much more from the educational setting of Sichas Chaverim than I could have ever learned from the Shir. What was it? It was a non-judgmental space for people to just share what they were going through. Jews of all ages, Jews of all backgrounds, sitting together and just sharing. And being able to sit in a setting of Sipurim. There was something so alive about it. There was something so real about it because that's what people are looking for. They're looking for life. They're looking for connection. And so tip number one, and, and again, I have to, who am I to give any tips? I'm not, we're here to learn together. It's just something that I hope will, will, be, will be helpful. I'm not any, any sort of expert or really on anything at all. Um, but it's just, if, if, if Hashem can help that we can implement this and it will be valuable and useful, that's, that's amazing. And I hope to be able to embody this myself. But the first tip is that there is no greater story to tell than your own. 
David HaMalach says, ki What story is David telling? His own story. The most important thing in education today is vulnerability. It's true for parenting also, but for, for, for educational purposes. And this feeds back into the same topic. We need to be seen as real people who struggle just like everyone else. And I presume that it's true. I don't, I don't think I'm speaking to a group of perfect people. If I, if I was, then we wouldn't be people and we wouldn't be here, right? It means that each of us have a vulnerability. Each of us have a challenge. Each of us are trying to also weigh all the various factors that go into making this experience of, of living in this generation so challenging. Share that. Be open. And however vulnerable we think we are, go even further out of your comfort zone. That's the most powerful because outside of having a lived experience where people are able to see a situation where it's a lived example of struggle and of triumph and being able to give over principles, not just again in the way of a lecture, but in the way that we embody those principles. So aside from the ideas getting across much clearer, in general, the relationship will become transformed we become more relatable as holistic people, all of us. We become more relatable. And that takes going out of our comforts. That's not easy to do. And we have to be delicate about it also because at the same time, we need to maintain, not for ourselves and for our own kavod, we need to maintain a certain level of, of respect, right? We are in positions of leadership and we should be seen that way. We don't want to go airing our dirty laundry. So it gets delicate and it needs planning and how to give over. And do we need to give over every detail? Can we give over just in general an experience without getting into the details? It makes no difference. Each of us will go through that process in our own minds and in our own preparation to go ahead and to make a conscious decision to share, to be more vulnerable. That's tip number one. Tip number two, with Hashem's help, is in searching for stories to use in education, there is a pattern that certain stories embody that make them really, really good to be able to communicate ideas. And the pattern is called, it's easier, especially for English speakers, I have no idea if anyone's understanding me, but I hope that you guys are, right? Is TTL, TTL. And TTL stands for trigger, that's the first T. Transformation. We're going to get into what this means in a second. Trigger, transformation, and lesson. TTL. When we're looking for stories, try to identify this pattern. Thank you for, for typing that up. And I'll send in just the, the sheer notes as well at the end so anybody can, uh, can review easily. TTL. Trigger, transformation, and lesson. Trigger means that there is a moment in the subject's life that we're telling about, where there's a shvira, where there's a tremendous, tremendous shift and a challenge and something that we need to overcome, or it's not ourselves, but it's a story about somebody that goes through something which is seismic, which is identifiably extremely difficult, not just challenging, extremely difficult. Transformation highlights what steps that person took or what circumstances the person put him or herself in to overcome that challenge and to try to grow and to try to progress and to try to proceed. And then 
the lesson is sort of post-story, after the story that follows this pattern. And if you'll think about it easily, most of the very famous stories follow this pattern. That's what makes them exciting to us. And more than that, that's what makes them relatable to us, which speaks to the first tip as well. But after the story's finished, lesson, lock it in. Lock it in. Speak about how we can take something in our own lives to learn from the challenge and the subsequent overcoming of that challenge to apply it. Because it needs to be clear to us again that another very important goal of ours, and again, none of this is new, it's just reviewing, is we're trying to make an actual impact. We're trying to move the needle in whatever area we're involved in. But if we're involved in spiritual education, spiritual development, we are trying to make a real impact in the world, not just to be another form of entertainment, which oftentimes shiurim are today. People go to shir in the same way they'd the they go to a movie. And it's entertaining, you know, and a lot of people that speak today do so in a very entertaining way. And they walk out and it was a nice way to spend their evening. And it's very, 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 you know, extremely different and better than spending your time in a different way. But it still falls in the category of like, it's a kind of entertainment. Are they different people? Maybe they're more motivated. Are they different? The main nakuda that we're trying to get across is a call to action in our education. In the same way that anything online, anybody who knows social media, you always want to have a call to action, right? You want to have something that after the person processes the information you're giving over, okay, click on the button, right? Sign up now, do this. We want to have a call to action. We want that people should leave our shuls or leave our bate medrash, whatever our position is, literally ready to implement something in their own life. And the way to do that is to get super practical and to outline practical tips. It's very important also to speak about theory, but bring it practical and always be learning because different things work for different people. That's how Kodesh Baruch Hu created us. The Gemara tells us, each of us have different faces, each of us have different fingerprints, each of us has a different consciousness and different people need to be related to in different ways. But be practical in all the ways that we're giving because what works for one person might not work for the other. To get familiar with some basic mental health practices. To get familiar with some physiological exercises that might bring a lifestyle change to a person in the way of derech eretz kadma la Torah. Because we cannot engage with Torah healthily if we're not first mentally healthily. You know, mentally healthy. And so many people today are dealing with mental health problems. It's like we're trying to give them Torah. There's, not, there's, not, there's no kli. There's no vessel. So in our positions, we need to be super, super familiar with different methods and different techniques that we can give over, get practical with it. And that's the lesson. And so the trigger makes it relatable. The transformation gives hope. And the lesson gives that call to action, that practical point that they can click on that button and they can leave with something that they can take for themselves, having felt related to, having walked out with hope because you provided an example of a person that was in darkness or a person that was going through a, tr- a struggle, whether it's Shalom bias or parenting or whatever, whatever area in life that people struggle with, and you provided practical tools that that person can implement. That's, a di- again, a different kind of education than just reading something off a script. So that's tip number two. And finally, tip number three is humor, is using humor. And I want to be clear about this. 
Some people are funnier than others. I unfortunately am not really blessed with humor. I, I try to incorporate it. I, I'm just, I'm not, especially in an educational setting, I've, I'll be vulnerable. I find it very difficult to switch tracks and like incorporate a joke and when I'm like trying to give over something serious, it's a challenge for me. But one thing I found that works is to pre-prepare a story you can tell over that has a comedic message or something funny about it for two reasons. First of all, the people are far more likely to remember the story and the lesson that you're trying to get across with the story. The haraya, a proof is everybody knows because we did this when we were younger also, and everybody knows this. When people come home from shul after hearing a dynamic rough speak, what are they telling over? They're telling over the joke, right? And like, then they'll tell over the message. But the main thing is they remember the joke. Jokes people remember, they're more likely to tell it over to someone else and therefore it locks it in in their mind. And what they don't know is that they thought it was just a joke, but there's a message there and it will stick with them. And we can leave them with that. That's one reason that humor is important. But another reason is for our own purposes. Sometimes it's very, it's very stressful. Sometimes it's very challenging to go ahead and to present and to speak and to get up in public. And these are, these are things that all of us deal with and grapple with and hopefully are going to grow from those challenges. But sometimes a joke can lighten up our own presentation, right? Can lighten up our own feeling and sort of shift us back into a place of just more easygoing, more laid back, more relaxed. And in that, and in so doing, it generally changes the tone of what we're giving over as well. Okay, so those are three tips. We'll review them very quickly. We had getting out of our comfort zone and sharing our own story, which makes it alive, makes it vibrant, makes it full of vitality. Like we said from that very foundational pasuk, to tell over the story of our own challenges, our own background, our own experiences, brings it to life, brings us to life, makes us super relatable to people. Number two that we spoke about is TTL, trigger, transformation, and lesson. And number three is the use of humor. Before I close this segment and I want to open it up to any tips that you guys can give me because we want to keep it equal and fair and I'm sure you have so much to share as well and so I'd love to hear about your experiences and just in general have a conversation around these topics and we've covered a lot you know we're just trying to give tiny bullet points but we, we you know we, just in general to speak about education and your experiences I want just to give one practical dynamic speaking tip. And again, I, you can see I'm not a very dynamic speaker. Like it's not like, okay, you know, I'm not an expert on dynamic speaking, but I can, I can give over one tip that I use. And I, I've actually become more conscious of it more recently because I, knew, I learned that it was a thing, but I've actually used it a number of times in this presentation. And it has a name and it's called an anaphora. It's a hard English word. It's called anaphora. And anaphora means the following. In a sentence structure, you can have something called alliteration. Alliteration is when you use the same word a number of times in a sentence. And it has like a rhythmic um, resonance to it. And poets use it and prose writers use it. And if you have a sentence with three words, you know, one, like for example, uh, today we're going to be talking about um, potential, uh, plant life, and something else with a P, right? You use, you use alliteration. It helps a person um, remember what the topics are, and it just sounds nice. So anaphora is to alliteration in the sentence structure. It's not words. 
but it's using the same formulation again and again and again in a series of sentences, and it comes across super, super powerful. And we're all familiar with, an, I think we're all familiar, at least the English speakers certainly are, and, and for sure if there's anybody from UK, for sure you are, but we're all familiar with a very famous example of this, and I'm going to read it off this page that I have written over here, um, which is one of the most memorable parts of Winston Churchill's um, really, really history-shifting speech that he gave to inspire the British people to fight and not to go ahead and make a deal with Hitler like they wanted to do, which would have, would have changed the course of history in a way that we can't even imagine. But to stand up to the bully, right, in a, in a, in a tremendous way. And he did this with one speech, and the speech is so memorable because of this use of anaphora, okay? And it says like this, he said, we shall fight in France, very, very famous. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. This is called, and he, and he went on like that, it's called anaphora. Because it's sort of, it's, it's almost like in boxing, it's like a one-two punch. You know, it's just, it's just pounding a concept across. And when you get passionate about something and you want to go ahead, Ah, lo. Okay, that's an easy one. Lo, right? Hashem was trying to punch it into us, right? There's the, there's the anaphora that we're able to use. And so next time you're talking about any concept, you can even prepare this. and prepare, You don't prepare a whole speech, but you could prepare a couple of sentences on a topic that you're giving a, a speech on, a lecture on, you're giving over a Dvar Torah. Prepare a part that you want to be the crescendo of the presentation and set it up through anaphora. Set it up, see? Set it up in a way that people are going to feel impacted. Set it up so that people walk out with one common message. And over there, I just did anaphora, right? Set it up, right? All of this, it's something very, very, very dynamic. It's something you can use. And it's a, it's a very important tip that long before I knew it was called anaphora, it's something I naturally do. And I was listening back to a shir that I gave two weeks ago, and I noticed this again and again. And I feel that it's something that's powerful. It's like punching a point home in a, in a super powerful way. So I, I just want to end with a story and then we'll open the floor with the, uh, with, the, with the few minutes we have left with Hashem's help. And again, I just want to give over my feeling of gratitude to all of you for being here so that we can learn together. It's a, it's a real privilege and it means a lot to me. And the story goes like this. Rebaruch of Mezbizh the grandson of the Baal Shem Tov HaKadosh, son of the Baal Shem's famous daughter, Adel, her name was Adel, Udel, for the Hasidim. He was mamish on his deathbed. He was breathing his last breaths and he could only speak in a very, very weak voice. And he called everybody over to hear his final message, all the Hasidim over to come and listen to what he was giving over. And of course, everybody crowds in and they're putting their ears right to his mouth because he's speaking so softly. And Urbarach used his last energy to tell the following story. Urbarach said there was once a tremendously wealthy Jew who had so much money, like the type he didn't know what to do with it. You know, he, he, he was just spending as much as he could, but he was making far more than he could spend, and he just had all this money sitting there. And one day he was thinking, how can I use all the funds that I have? How can I go ahead and 
buy something that I don't already have that will enhance my property. And he thought to himself, you know, it would be really sweet to have. I want to buy the nicest racehorse in the whole entire Poland. Just the nicest one. The top, top, top racehorse. I'll pay whatever it costs. Makes no difference. I want to own the nicest racehorse in Poland. That was his Michigas. Okay, so he goes, preliminary research, looks for a week, two weeks, three weeks, and he's, doing, he's, he's having conversations. And finally, he identified the purebred, incredibly powerful, white, crisp white, not a beautiful, beautiful, powerful horse. And it's an exorbitant amount of money, doesn't make a difference to him. He buys the horse, and they're on their way back to his sprawling mansion where he lives in order to bring the horse to its new home. But he's thinking to himself along the way, he says, you know, if we're going to have such an incredible horse, I can't just have it like in a regular barn. I mean, this is, this is like an incredible, incredible horse. We, we need to go ahead and, and, uh, and, and house it properly in a way that's fitting for this horse. And so he calls up a couple of contractors and they build the most beautiful state-of-the-art air-conditioned heated barn, like an incredible, glorious barn to house the horse. So after the barn is built and they're ready to move the horse in, he says to himself, yeah, okay, we have this incredible barn, but like, what's it worth if anybody can just break in and steal the nicest racehorse in all of Poland? Word's gonna get around and we have to protect it, so he calls the locksmith. And they come and they put a state-of-the-art, beautiful, glorious lock with all kinds of combinations and keys to turn and a whole system. And he's satisfied with that. But then he thinks to himself, just one last makabapatish. He says, a lock, someone can come and break. They can just saw it out or they can get through. He says, I need to hire a shoimra Pesach. I need to hire someone who's going to sit all hours of the night. Maybe I'll hire two, one for the day, one for the night, to sit outside of that barn and make sure that nobody comes to try to break through to steal my racehorse. And he finds some yakol. He finds some simpleton sitting in the shuk and he hires him. No problems. Like, can you do this job? Yes, I can sit and do nothing. Fine. So they hire him and he put him in a chair outside the barn. And finally, he goes to sleep and he has yeshavadas. But as he's trying to fall asleep, he's tossing and turning in his beautiful bed. And he's thinking to himself, it's very possible that the Shoim Pesach fell asleep. It's late. And it's, it's already whatever it was, 12.30, 1 o'clock. It, it's very possible he's sleeping. Maybe somebody came and is sawing out the lock. So he puts on his night coat, whatever it is. He runs down the spiral staircase. He runs out the big, beautiful doors. And he runs over to the barn. And he sees that the fellow is sitting wide awake. Like no hint of tiredness. Uh, at all. His mom is wide awake. So he tells him, he says, I'm so happy you're doing your job well. Tell me, how are you, how are you so awake? I'm saying, I'm, I'm already going to sleep. How, how are you so up? And he says, well, I'll tell you. He says, I really am bothered by a very, very important question that's keeping me up. He says, okay, please share it. You know, anything, I'm, I'm here to listen. What's, what's, your, what's your challenge? What are you going through? What are you thinking about? He says, well, you see, I was watching them build the barn today and they were knocking in nails into the wood. He says, where did the wood go that was in the place where the nail went? Where did it go? Like, <laughs> the nail went in, nothing came out on the other side. Where did the, where did the wood go? And so the wealthy, per, the wealthy man says, he says, you keep, that's a very important question. You keep thinking about that question, okay? It's, that's, that's a really tough question. You keep thinking about it. And he's like, shaita. Anyway, he goes back into his house. He goes up to sleep and he lays down in bed. And the time is ticking on. It's one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. And he's like, the guy's for sure sleeping. He can't sleep. He's so worried about the horse. He comes running down again. And he sees again, he's wide awake. 
And so again, and they go through the same thing. How are you so awake? And he tells him, you know something? I have an even deeper question than the first time. He says, okay, let's hear it, you know? Let's hear what you're, what you're bothered by. And he says, well, yesterday I was in the, uh, the bagel shop and I'm thinking, so they make the bagel. What do they do with the hole? What do they do with the inside of the bagels, right? I only see bagels, so presumably there was a hole. They popped it out. Where are all those holes? <laughs> so he says, Gavalt, he says, you keep thinking such a deep question. You're so smart. You're a brilliant person. You keep thinking the question. He goes back to sleep. Okay, now it's really getting 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6.30 a.m. The sun's starting to rise. He's like, the guy's for sure sleeping. So for the last time, he runs downstairs. They go through the whole shtick. The guy's wide awake. And he tells him again, so what's bothering you now? And he says, well, now I have the deepest question of all. He says, okay. He says, you see this beautiful barn? And he says, yes, it's a beautiful, gigantic barn. And he says, to protect it, you see that they put this incredible lock on this barn? He says, yeah, yeah, I paid for that lock yesterday. And they put it in, they installed it. It's a gavalt. It's so beautiful and so powerful and so strong. And the person says, and you see that I'm sitting here? And he says, yeah, I mean, you've been doing a great job. You're up the whole night with all your questions. So he says, so where's the horse? And with that, Rabbi Baruch Meshbisar took his last breath and he passed away. Now, it's a funny story, but it's an incredibly deep story. And with this, I want to close. And it's an incredibly deep story because Rabbi Baruch of Meshbish, who only two generations after the Baal Shem Tev left this message for his students before he left the world, was trying to communicate to them that we can go ahead and construct the strongest kalim and the strongest vessels and the strongest settings for everything that we're trying to give over. But if we focus too much on the barn and we focus too much on the lock and the person that's protecting it and we take our eye off the ball of what we're trying to protect, then before you know it, going back to the symbolism of the beginning of the class, we have a lot of Eitzhadas Tovarah people walking around who have a ton of information in their heads and all the halachas and how to do everything right. But the Eitzah is gone. And Rebaruch HaMezhbiz was trying to give over that what the Baal Shem Tev brought to the world, that fire and that feeling and that intention and that focus. Because Hasidus already then had begun to become institutionalized, they were losing the horse. They were losing the point. They were losing the middle. They were losing the hole in the bagel. They were, they were losing the center point. Now you tell me, what was more impactful? For me to give over this message just to tell it to you? Or in the form of a story? I mean, it's, it's ain't a doyme. Because you'll remember that story. And you'll likely give it over to others, right? Because it's such a, a strong, crucial message. And it's couched within something that's entertaining. Within something that's useful. And so this is the power of story. And so I just want to end with a blessing. Mama Hashem should bless you and me. That we should all have continued hatzlacha. In being his shlichim, you don't have to be chabad to be a shliach. You have to be a shliach to be a Jew. And certainly, if you're in a if you're in a leadership position, we're Hashem's messengers. We are the authors, and Hakadosh Baruch Hu is the ink and the pen that He's telling His story through us, and He's helping us to shape other people's stories. Hashem should bless us with continued hatzlacha, and to be those kinds of leaders that are not so much like Moshe Rabbeinu, you know, just information. We have to be like that too. But Aaron Akoyin was telling stories all the time. Ayyiv Shalom Varaydiv Shalom. He would go to this one and tell some Baba Maisa about what the other one thought. And then he would go to this one and tell a Baba Maisa. And that brought people together. Oyevis Abrius Umakarvan Latira. People today want not to be taught Torah. 
They want to be given a life jacket, something to hold on to, because we live in such a turbulent time and everyone needs something to hold on to. So that's my bracha to you. It's my bracha to me. I hope that there was value here. I hope that there's some tools that we can apply in our own messaging and our own education. And uh, let's go out into the world and mamish, bring light to people, bring feeling to people, bring comfort to people. That's, uh, that's our whole intention. So now I, I don't know, Rebefi, I don't know exactly how this works. I don't know if you want to take over from here or just to open the floor. I guess if anybody has a, has a question or has something they want to share on something that I said, so now, now's the time. So I guess we'll do it with hand raising if your videos are on. And um, uh, if, yeah, go for it, Noam. Reb Noam. No problem. Yeah, we can hear you. Um, amazing. Thank you so much for your time. Very inspiring. Thanks. Um, was there any rule of thumb or maybe guidelines that you would differentiate between a telling over story versus sort of a personal story? I would say like this. I would say that telling over a story is more useful in the context of a lecture, all right, or a class kind of setting where you have a message that you're trying to give, a, give over, you have a topic that you're speaking about, and today with Google, all of us know, it's super easy to research stories and, and find stories. There are so many wonderful books that are out, you know, Hasidish stories, Gedolim stories, biographies, it's so easy to, you know, to find um, stories on topic. And that becomes sort of part of a, we would say, a Moshe Rabbeinu presentation, right, where you're trying to get ideas across to bring the story home. I would say that let's save our own stories for the more informal setting where it's just sitting around with the chevra, you know, and, it, and it's, and, and, and I would even say, again, I don't know what your position is. I don't know what, what your capacity is, but, but I think all of us can do this in some, in some kind of way is to actively create sichas chaveris groups where it's not like people are not coming for a shir. They're coming for a, a, a group discussion. You know, and, and yeah, it's a little bit different. It's something a little bit out of our comfort zone because all of us know how to give a shear and all of us can prepare a couple of bullet points and give it over in our own unique style. All of us can do that. It's different when we're moderating a group. And more than being a moderator, we genuinely feel that we're a part of the group. Like the Pasuk says, Like all the tzaddikim just want to sit with everybody else, be a part of it, that, that it should be a conversation. And you can use a book which is a great, great way to start to have at least some content to sort of springboard off of. It's called a book club, right? It's something that's super easy to do. There are so many great books out there um, that, that, that you can find to give these book clubs on. And it's, I found that people are far more likely to attend a book club than they are to attend a shir. Because people want to participate today. People want to, to share. And guess what? They have what to share. Because they might not have lectures to tell you, but they have their own personal experiences. So I would say that, let, that, that whatever we're thinking about in terms of our own challenges, in terms of our own past, in terms of our own stories, in terms of our own experiences, unless something pops into your head and you want to use it as an example, right? But in, in, in an informal setting, 
that works really well. And it also, when people see you being vulnerable, they're going to open up much more. And it, and, it, and it just lends itself to a very real experience where everyone stands up afterwards, where it's not like someone's up here and everyone's down here and I'm like, oh, thank you very much. It's not like that. Everyone leaves feeling like a person, like a human being, which is already a big uh, accomplishment today. That's, that's what I'd say just off the top of my balding head. That's, that's one thing I'd say. Yeah. Is there anybody else who, who wants to share? Not on really anything we said or, or a question or an answer or... Yes, we're Ruben. Yes, we can hear you. I thank you for uh, for your stories. Uh, you're really a, a great storyteller. <clears throat> thank you. Uh, uh, so you you were talking about uh, how we can uh, share a message, a message, but uh, also just uh, small things to add that uh, when we're talking about uh, terms that we are working with, like Torah, what what is Torah? It's uh, it's also what I do. When I'm trying to describe uh, the Torah, it's not only Reish, Shmois, Vayikra, so that's the Torah. Because uh, people don't uh, don't understand it that way, especially people that are not from our society, from Rehoikim. Uh, so we should uh, uh, give some, some uh, describe this something, how we feel about it. And that way we can uh, describe it. Exactly. Beautiful. Thank you for that addition. That's so true. That's so true. Right? Because stories help clarify. People think in stories. Again, real life is not in a classroom. Real life is in your dining room. That, that's a story. That's not, that's not, you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not like technical information. Real people think in stories, tell stories, live a story. Um, and, and, and that's why I think it's so important to keep on going back to that pasuk that we spoke about. That the furthest thing from death and the closest thing to life is vasaper masikos to tell a story. That brings vibrance. That brings uh, vitality. Yeah, Reb Zacharia. Wonderful to meet you. You can speak in Hebrew if you want. I, I don't. Maimod, thank you so much for sharing your your Torah and your words. Um, so I, I have two questions. First of all, I don't know if you mentioned this maybe in the beginning, but um, when, if you're standing in front of a classroom, what part of the of the lecture is the best part to, mm. to add the story in? Um, that's the first question. And I just wanted to know if you have any um, examples of book clubs of which which sort of books uh, sure. are, you would sure. recommend. Sure. So, 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 with regard to the the best time to to say a story, presuming that everything that shalem has a beginning, middle, and end, I would say in the beginning, in the middle, and the end. Right? You begin with a story, and then you lock it, you lock the message in in the center, sort of somewhere there, with a story, and then I would say the most chashuv is to end with a story, because that's what people are going to take with it. That's seidal aderech. Because that's something that, and if you can find a story that encapsulates the whole message, something similar to what I, what I did a little bit ago when I was speaking, I try to end with a story that embodies and exemplifies what we've been discussing. And so really all three. I, I read a statistic that, that, um, scien that, that scientists have found, studies have shown, that a memorable presentation is 65% stories. And only 
I'm terrible at math, so we're going to take a stab in the dark. Is it 45%? <laughs> I don't know. But the other percent should be, should be, should be information. And that, that's a shocking statistic. And I would also say, and again, it's something I, I struggle with because I'm very heady. I'm very like technical. I'm, very, I'm not, I, I, they said I'm a storyteller. I, I, it's something I aspire to be. It's something, you know, I, I'm usually giving over information, straight information, and I'm writing information. Even though I wrote a, a, story, a book about a story, but it, it's information there. Um, it's, it's challenging to do. And I think that, um, again, being vulnerable here, I, I think one of the reasons that I find it challenging is because it, it's not so chashuv to tell a story like it is to give a shear. you know? It's like really like 65%, like anybody could tell a story, like I'm here to give over information. And the answer is no, you're not. And I have to remind myself of this all the time. I am not here to give over information. I'm here to give over a vibe. I'm here to give over a feeling. I'm here to inspire. I'm here to leave people a little bit more hopeful and a little bit more elevated than they were before the session. That's what I'm there to do. And so it makes no difference how they're gonna look upon me, whether it's like, oh, you know, that like that was the lecture, like who cares, that's not the point. And people like that are, even if it was 85% lecture, they wouldn't be happy, they'd find something else to complain about it, presumably that there's not enough stories, right? <laughs> They'll find something, that's not the point. The point is, you know, this is, that's a, that's a big statistic. So that's something that I've, uh, that I've read. Um, with regard to books for book clubs, you know, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, a difficult question to ask an author, you know, because you probably can guess what my answer is going to be. I, I think that the book, The Story of Our Lives, which is my third book, has been a really helpful tool to our book clubs all around the world in different communities on the book, the Siyanta de Shemaya. Um, there is one in Toronto now, which all the sessions are online on YouTube. You can look it up. Thornhill, Toronto. You can Google it. All of their sessions are recorded. There's one in Houston, a new shul that opened up. There is one in Woodmere. There's one in Teaneck. There are many, many different communities, formal and informal, meaning shuls and then just groups of Jews that just want to grow and just arranged a group on their own and getting together in people's houses. They read a chapter a week and then they get together to discuss it. And each group has a moderator, right? So it has someone who is recognized as the person that's going to be leading the group, that's going to be... Um, but and that person chooses a couple of ideas he wants to focus on, and then opens the floor. And it's it's really fascinating, you know, to hear what comes out. And I've learned so much more from listening to these recordings than I learned in the research to write the book. Because again, I sort of am rereading the book in narrative form because I'm hearing people's stories, I'm hearing people's experiences, different people's uh, uh, you know circumstances that align with some of the things I was writing about. Oh, like I, I get a deeper understanding of it, and so that's a that's a good book, you know, as a, a like shameless plug, you know, and, and arrogant as that sounds, but it's just to be helpful. It it, it is it is used, um, but there are any number of books that you can choose. Um, for example, another book of mine. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> there are any other, there are any number of books that you could choose. Um, you know, if if it's in the English language, if it's in the Hebrew language, something that is accessible to people. But that's also deep, you know, not like a, uh, you know, a collection of Gedolim stories is wonderful. But that's not the kind of book we're speaking about. It should be, you know, something from, let's say, Rabbi Akiva Tatz, right? Also put, you know, very, very thought provoking, easy to read. Anything from Rabbi Arya Kaplan. Anything from Rabbi Arya Kaplan. There's so much there. He was a genius of simplifying. I'm looking at my bookshelf over here. Um, 
Ravari Kaplan, there are, there are a ton of, if this is your thing, there are a ton of Breslov books that have been translated into English that are so deep, and there's so much food for thought there. Um, you know, Rav Pincus' books have been translated. The Nesiva Shalom has been translated into English. There's so much to use, you know, so you really just have to go to the bookstore, look around, and you can find a book. Um, the best is if you can find my book, of course. <laughs> but if you, but you find a book that, that jumps out at you and sets something up, you'll see. People are going to be much more interested than, uh, than, than even a shear that you bring somebody in. People are going to want to commit to it. They're going to want to be a part of something. They're going to want to feel that it's something they're not just coming to listen to, but they're a part of. And that's very, very valuable for people. Thank you. Thank you for those questions. אני מקווה שהבנת אותי. הבנת אותך מצוין. אני אולי זה לא חוכמה להגיד, כי החולשה שלי, my weakness, is to stories, אבל שתי דברים. א', כמובן שהסיפור זה עוקף את כל המנגנוני הגנה של השכל, כמו שנוסן הנובי מגיע לדוביד המלך ואומר, בוא תשמע סיפור יפה, היה איזה עני והיה איזה עשיר, ודוביד המלך, וואו, אני אוהב לשמוע סיפורים. ככה, זה היה באמת? אז תהרוג אותו. הוא אומר לו, זה אתה. הסיפור זה מוריד את כל המנגנונים, ולא משנה אם הוא אפיקוירס או צדיק גדול, הוא יושב ומקשיב לסיפור. זה נקודה ראשונה. הנקודה השנייה, אני לא חושב שצריכים כל כך לחפש סיפורים, אלא לעשות סיפורים. אני נסעתי לפני שבועיים למינכן, לעבידת רבני אירופה, ואני נותן שיעורים בקהילה, וחזרתי עם כל כך הרבה סיפורים. מהדרך הלוך ברכבת ומהדרך הזו שחזרתי עם הרבי שלקח אותי ברייט, קוראים לקח פיפם וכל יום שאני משכיב את הילד שלי לישון רק צריכים לעשות מזה סיפור יפה אבל החיים שלנו הם כל כך מלאים בסיפורים הם כל כך מלאים בדברים יפים רק תספר את זה ודאי אני לא חושב שספרים רחוק כל יום תחזור מה היה לך אחרי שחיס ראיתי חתולה נכנסת מתחת לאוטו ושותה מים היום זה מדהים, ורק חובה כל מה לעשות, לא כל יום החיים שלנו מלאים, תספר את מה שהיה לך, תחשוב מה היה לי היום, מה היה לי אתמול, ותספר את זה, וזה פותח את הלבבות. אמייזינג, זה so so true, thank you for sharing. I would also add to that, that it's, that, that, There's one Nakuda of reviewing what happened to you or thinking about experiences, but once, I think, once we get into the narrative kind of education, we begin to look for the stories. We begin to process information as usable material. I do this all the time. I, I, I am not a great lover of social media, and that's like, to say the least, I, I really don't like it at all. I do have Facebook, and I use, and, and all of you are, if you do use Facebook, would love to, you know, would love to connect with you there. Um, and, and any of you can feel free to reach out to me in any medium, you'll get my contact from Rav Effie, and we can, I would love to build relationships, you know, I would love to learn from you. Um, but on Facebook, it's, it's like my personal journal. And rove of what I put over there, I actually have a safer coming out from the Facebook posts for, th- for three years between 2018 and 2021. Um, rove of it is just experiences that I have mostly with my kids that I, I mamish see messages in. And like, I try to be attuned to what's going on. Look around. If you see something, okay, ma messer, what, what's the message here? And then I bring it back into, into, into shiurim. So you develop a consciousness where not just like you're thinking about what happened to you and like what, but you're, you're like, like, like Ramosha said, you're, you're, you're 
creating the story and you are allowing every moment of life to become something that can be used in teaching. Because I'll say, whoever, a person must speak and be other. It's incredible. If you go ahead and you try to learn to give over, it's, it's the hachitov, it's Torah chesed, it's mamash Torah chesed, to learn to teach. And so our whole life could become teachable. And, that, and by the way, I don't, either, I don't even mean or only mean the uh, you know the the nice cute things that happened because you saw something the two cats and it, there was a message there it was something like that along along the street I mean even the challenges even the, even when we are need someone to, to educate us right which I, I I go through a lot of that and even when we need somebody else to guide us because all of us should hopefully have those that are guiding us right we need to be conscious and I'm sure we all are we have the people that we are shol by we have the people that we look to right those challenges as well that are happening away from you know the people that we're impacting we need to go through that and see that struggle also through the prism of how this itself one day is going to be able to be incorporated this itself it's it's just god's training program it's hashem's zoom course on telling stories by putting me through a story and and by the way it's not i'm just I can't get into the whole depth of this now, but because we don't have time. But this is basically what happened with the Chayta Egel and with and with David and Basheva. Chazal say Hashem put them through that story. The Gemara says was was the was the Chayta Egel to the point that Chazal saying Gitin that we have to be makir tov that they did the Egel because without that there would be no mitzvah ksuba. Crazy thing because there would be no misan because there was a, crazy stuff, right? Hashem put them through that story in order to give them a story to tell. And so that's a different perspective. Sometimes we're going through a difficult time and sometimes we're driving somewhere and we get a flat tire, you know, and, and we're, you know, and, and we're, we're just, whatever it is, the, the proverbial challenge. And we think to ourselves, wait a second, no, maybe I'm going through a story because it's just Hashem telling me a story. And if I could see it from that perspective, then this is not holding me back because now I'm gonna be late to the shear. No, this is giving me something to speak about. Right? And so that's a different perspective as well. So thank you, Ramosha, for bringing that up. That's really, really true. Yeah.